Today, we're going to be wrapping up our series in 2 Thessalonians, our actively waiting series. Um, as you pray, just want to encourage you to be praying. We'll be beginning next week. We're going to be beginning our, our series, Jesus Said What? Um, and we're going to be looking at the, as we come up to Easter, the seven distinct sayings of Jesus on the cross. Um, and you'll be hearing from a few of us as we bring the word. Um, and so just want to encourage you to be praying for that just as we prepare our hearts for Easter. It seems weird that we're already in March. And um, I don't know about you, it's just probably because getting older. And um, where's Lucille at? See, I didn't say I was getting old. I'm getting older. Um, so um, in any event, I enjoy that. Thanks, Lucille, for reminding me of that. Um, so... Um, but this morning, we're going we're gonna to wrap up our time in 2 Thessalonians. And if you'll recall, what was happening at this time in, the, in Thessalonica was that Paul had already visited the church. He had left, and then he was hearing reports about these questions, uh, about questions that the Christians that were having there in Thessalonica. And in the first chapter... We know that the church was experiencing tremendous persecution, and Paul actually lays out for them, hey, you guys are doing it well. Because persecution gets worse doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. In fact, it probably means that you're doing something right. And he goes on and he commends the church for their, their obedience to Christ, their faithfulness to Christ, their faithfulness to the truth. And then he goes on, and they had received this letter that was disrupting them. Somebody had told them that the day of the Lord had already come. And they were concerned that they had missed the day of the Lord. And Paul goes on, and he lays out for them what to expect, what they can expect to see on the day of the Lord, both God's, God's blessing and God's wrath for those who have not yet repented and believed on Christ. And then the final issue that's being dealt with is an issue of misunderstanding or really laziness, idleness that's occurring within the church. That as others are waiting for the day of the Lord to come, they have quit their jobs, they've sold their possessions, they've moved on. We actually saw something like this a few years back where somebody had predicted that Christ was going to come on a date. And if you remember, I remember Elisa being on a flight back home, and I remember getting off the flight and sharing with us just that these people that were in front of her that had believed this, they had actually sold their homes. And they were talking about how they would see each other the next day in heaven. They were deeply misled. But... The point that's happening here is that in Thessalonica, there were those that were living and walking in idleness. And Paul comes back and he, he actually describes those living in idleness as a burden to the church. They were discouraging the church. And so the church was experiencing this discouragement, these questions, because one, they were experiencing persecution and it didn't seem like it was letting up. Two, they thought that they may have missed the day of the Lord. And then three, 
they were having to carry these people who were just walking in idleness, not in the, the tradition that Paul had laid out for them. As you think about that today, the question often arises of when do we help someone and when we don't? When do we help someone in need and when do we not help somebody in need? And do we go on indefinitely helping a person in need? And the scripture actually has and lays this out pretty cleanly for us. And this morning we're going to be looking at that together, that God provides an example for work. An example for work that as followers of Christ were to follow. Work's kind of a touchy thing. It kind of gets up there when we discuss and talk about work. It's up there with money and sex. It's kind of like, leave me alone. And so I want to encourage you this morning that some of what might say to you, that God might say to you this morning, is something that might tap your heart. My hope is that it knocks on the door of each of our hearts, that his word penetrates and cuts through The tone of this passage is not one of passivity. It's actually a passage where Paul is rebuking. He's admonishing and he's instructing with force, with passion, and with boldness. It's a passage in which four times the word command is used. We command you, brothers, is how it begins. So let's look at this passage together and let's hear what God has to say about our work together as the body of Christ. But even more than that, being disciplined followers of Christ. Let's stand together as we read his word. We're going to be looking at verse 6 and we're going to go going through verse 18. This is what it says. It says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. For even when we were with you, excuse me, uh, it was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. I, Paul, oh, excuse me, the Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ 
be with you all. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would settle our hearts this morning. Lord, may you be the one who speaks directly to us through your word. Father, may, may we hear the words that you have spoken. And may we allow them to encourage us, convict us, challenge us. Father, may we allow your word to work in our hearts. Lord God, I pray that you'd move me out of the way this morning and be you who speaks forth in power through your spirit. God, may each of our hearts be ready for your word. And Father, may we walk in humility with one another. May we be changed this morning. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. At the heart of this passage is the idea that the Lord's example for work allows his church to bear up with and not be a burden on one another. The Lord's example for work allows his church to bear up with and not be a burden on one another. So we are to work, which allows us to bear up with one another. Now, there's two words in that statement. With and on. We're to bear up with one another. We're not to be a burden on one another. We're to bear up with one another and not to be a burden on one another. And I would encourage you, if you have the notes, to circle with and on. When we bear up with one another, we're moving towards the same goal. We're moving towards the same desired holiness in Christ. Being a burden on one another is moving us or dragging us down, taking us apart, bringing division and weariness. Now, in verse 6, it says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. This is how Paul begins this section. He's just talked about prayer. He's just said in verse 4, And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to love of God and to the steadfast of Christ. And then he says... Now we command you, brothers. What have they just prayed for? They're praying for obedience, knowing the heart of those. And he's saying, listen. In the name of Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. He invokes the name of the Lord. He's speaking with authority here. He's saying the, the brother that is idle, the brother or sister that is an idol, is actually hurting the community, the body of Christ, and the name of Jesus. That's what he's saying. Now, this word idleness here is the word ataktos. And 
Ataktos in Greek means two things, really. Undisciplined and disordered. And it carries with it the idea of unruliness and laziness. It means undisciplined or disordered. And it carries with it the idea of unruliness and laziness. So what he's talking about here is an an idleness that is not just standing still. And I think this is where in, in the ESV, we want to go a little bit deeper beyond that word idleness and really understand what he's saying. He's saying these individuals are living an undisciplined life, a a disordered life. They're not walking in the priorities that God has given them. They're not living with intentionality in their work. They're not seeing their work as something that is a blessing by God. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Work was not something that was the result of the fall. Sometimes I get this picture that we look at Eden and we go, Man, Eden's like this great tropical paradise, which it may have been. But this great tropical paradise for us means that we're sitting on the beach someplace, having something cold to drink, with the sun sitting on us, and for those of us that don't have skin that tan, worry about burning, right? That's kind of how we picture the Garden of Eden a lot, that it was just kind of Adam and Eve flowing through the garden, doing whatever they wanted to do with nothing else but just take care of me and lavish upon me. But God actually had given them responsibility. He had given them work in the garden, They were working on his behalf. Why? Because they were image bearers of God. God created. He rested. He worked. He rested. As image bearers of God, we have been called to work. But as a result of the fall in Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19... We're told, it says here that, And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." So because of sin, this very thing that God gave as a blessing in the garden, this idea, this thing called work, this sharing in the purpose of God, identifying in in our creator, it's now become toil. It's now become something that we, we, we become tired to do. And it says here that we, by the sweat of our brow, we're going to eat And so work becomes this thing that we kind of move to a place where we kind of want to get out of, to move away from. If we don't have to do it, we don't want to do it. We've lost sight that work is actually a blessing by God. You see, we work to love God. It's one of the ways that we walk in obedience and identify with Him. 
We work to love others well, to be able to, to meet the needs of those who are in need. We work to reflect the character of God, that God is a creator. Uh, God is a God who is a provider. God is a God who is faithful and steadfast. We work to make money to provide for our families, as Scripture says, to provide for our own selves and for our families. We work to grow in faith, trusting that God has something good even when we don't like what we do. That the very job that I work actually is a blessing even when I don't like it because God is growing me more like him into a person more like him. He is reflecting his character through my work and he's allowing that work to provide for me. And ultimately, our work shows the gospel. It lays out for us clarity in the gospel. Think about this passage for a minute. Titus 2 says this, 9 and 10. It says, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. He's called slaves to even do their work well, to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So our work matters. It matters. So, we've been given then this example to be followed for work as Christ's church. Notice what he says in verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. So he lays out this example. And this example then becomes the model for us to follow in our work. So what is the first part of following this example? We're to imitate the disciplined work of the apostles. We're to imitate the disciplined work of the apostles. Notice how they described it. He says here, nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. So when Paul was in Thessalonica earlier, Paul had shown them the way to live, the way to work. He worked to support his own needs, to set an example of work, and to put down any accusations that he might be seeking personal gain through the ministry. They were young believers. Outside of that, there were many questions. What he's not saying here, because we know in Scripture that there are other passages that speak of shepherds and churches being, being paid, receiving their income to do that. But in a newly planted church, he was saying here, listen, I want to make no mistakes here. I want to make sure that the integrity of the gospel is intact, that no one can confuse what I'm doing for personal gain. 
And he did not want to lay that burden on them. And so in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12, he says in his earlier letter, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to inspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Did you catch that? This hard work was not just an aspect of protecting the integrity of the gospel. It wasn't just an aspect of not wanting to be a burden But it was more than that. It was a demonstration of the love that he had for his brothers and sisters by not becoming a burden to them. And it brought forth his witness to others. When we work well, when we work in a disciplined manner, in an orderly manner, it stands out. I don't know how many of you guys watch Undercover Boss. But there, I won't tell you, well, maybe I will since it's on public TV. I, I remember watching the episode on Boston Market. You guys know Boston Market, the kind of chicken and whatnot. And there was an employee, and the boss went in, and the employee's standing there, and he was touted up as this kind of great employee. And he's standing there, and he's talking to this the, the, the CEO of this company, but he does not know, or the COO of the company, he does not know that she's the COO of the company. And he says to her, he says, listen, I hate these customers. I hate these people. And he goes, I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I, I don't like any one of them. And the idea that we have to think that they're always right is wrong. And the truth is, is every single one of them, I smile at them and I hate them. And I'm like, and so the, the undercover boss, she goes and she says, I can't put up with this. I can't have an employee that's in my organization that's saying out loud that she hates our customers. And so she goes outside and she takes him outside and says, hey, I want you to know who I am. And he's like, oh my. And he's like, she goes, you know, we, our customers is how we make money. And you're saying that you hate them. And his response was, well, it's not wrong to hate people, right? Now, yeah, it is terrible. And, and I think sometimes we can view work with that disdain. We may not be the ones standing by, I hate these people. But we can live in a place where we join in with uh, those around us that are speaking ill of bosses, Authority will always be questioned in the world. Leaders will never be able to satisfy everyone. And they're an easy target. Disgruntledness becomes gossip. As an employee, it's easy to do the least amount rather than the most. But when the gospel informs us, we no longer see ourselves as serving someone else or serving an organization, but we see ourselves as serving God. And that's what the disciples are doing here, or excuse me, the apostles are doing. They are serving God. 
had a family member that was wrestling with their faith. Questioning the reality of Jesus. More than anything that I ever imagined in my own life was in my mind, share the gospel, keep the gospel in front of this person. Point them towards people who love Jesus. Encourage that person to be at church. Do you know what the number one thing that changed this person's life was? Working in an organization with believers. And of the the two believers that was in this person's group, after seeing them work, the person came and shared with me these simple words. Christians aren't really weird in the workplace. They just seem to be more kind and more honest. Wow. Profound, isn't it? But the way that the other believers worked was transforming to this person's faith. It seemed to solidify the reality of Jesus, the truth of Jesus. That there was something unique in the work of believers. Now notice, he has an important phrase here. He says, but with toil and labor we worked night and day. Paul worked during the day and ministered at night. Or ministered at night, excuse me, ministered during the day and worked at night. We don't know. What we know is that he toiled and labored. In Greek, that word toil is makthos, and it literally refers to a hard labor to the point of bringing pain. The word labor in Greek is kapos. And kapos implies a weariness on the heart of people to the point of being beaten. These are not words that he's chosen lightly. He's saying, I've worked hard to the point of pain and to the point of weariness, and I worked night and day so that the gospel would go forward. It should be a model for our own lives. And I don't mean that we work ourselves ragged. That's not what I'm talking about. What I am saying is our work should never be an excuse not to do ministry. Our work should never be an excuse to not participate in ministry. We toil and we labor because the gospel is that important. We work hard during the day, but we still engage in the body of Christ Not because it's a have to, but it's because it's a get to. It's because the gospel is that important to proclaim, and it's because it is that important to walk in and receive in the body of Christ with others. It doesn't mean that there aren't seasons where we need to take rest, but it does mean 
that if we're not able to, on the one hand, work hard and then labor some more in the body of Christ, we might have some things out of priority. Because God intended us both to work and to also be engaged in his body, in fellowship with other believers and proclaiming his word. I think we have come to a place where the ministry of Christ is an add-on to what we see as essential in our life. And what do I mean by that? The gathering of believers and the proclaiming of his word is essential to our life. Our work becomes one way to proclaim that, to live that out. And we need to understand that the gospel is the priority. It doesn't mean that we don't have seasons in which we say, yeah, I just can't do it all. But when we're in those seasons that we can't do it all, we need to take stock and say, what other things are actually draining of us? Because we've moved away from the priority. That's what Paul's talking about, about a disciplined life. See, Paul and the others were willing to toil and labor for the kingdom because they believed it to be vital to their love for God and their love for others. Colossians 3, 22 through 24 says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. When we work, we're serving the Lord Jesus Charles Spurgeon adds this, But well-doing consists in taking down the shutters and selling your goods, tucking up your shirt sleeves and doing a good day's work, sweeping the carpets and dusting the chairs if you happen to be a domestic servant. Well-doing is attending to the duties that arise out of our relationships in life, attending carefully to them and seeing that in nothing we are eye-servers or men-pleasers, but in everything are seeking to serve God. So how we approach our work Do we see our work as, a, as an effort that's going to involve seasons in which, yes, we're tired. Yes, we're, we're weary, but the moment that we experience that tiredness and weariness, we don't disengage, but rather we engage in the gospel and gospel living. We need the body of Christ. We need to be present in the body of Christ. And the gospel needs to be in front in forming our work, not the other way around. For those of you who are students, that means that you work as if you serve God. It's not the least amount of schoolwork that you can do or how far you can let it go past late to get credit. It's that you live with Christ in mind. Knowing that you're not serving a teacher. 
You're not serving yourself, but you are serving Jesus. For those who are retired, God has called you to live a disciplined and ordered life as well. Nowhere in Scripture does it ever say that we retire from the work that God has for us. Retirement means that now I'm just no longer a bondservant or slave to someone else for my pay or for my income. But now I have freedom to listen to the Lord as to where He is sending me to serve Him. John Cossey Remember a number of years ago, I was sitting in a meeting together, and he said, it's weird. I'm retired, but I'm more busy than I've ever been in my life. I think sometimes we think of these things, and we take what Americanisms that we have, and we apply them to Scripture. But your life is not done serving the Lord until the Lord removes you from this place. Until he takes you home. He's given you a call to work for him. And God has said that we're to live a disciplined and ordered life for his kingdom. Those who stay at home. God's ordered, called you to live an ordered and disciplined life at home. That means that you live with intentionality. Your day is not just what comes to you, but rather it is a day where I'm seeking the Lord of what do you have for me today and how do I live with an intentionality for his purpose today. Those that are in the workplace, it's a waking up each day saying, God, what do you have for me? Who do you have me with? And may I approach my day not with the least that I can get done, but rather what am I going to do and accomplish for your pleasing Lord? How can I bless those who employ me? Those of us who are pastors, that means that we approach our day with an intentionality. And I have to admit, there are days where I look at my email and I look at my sermon, and I go, I want to dive into those things first. And yet what I know what the Lord has for me is time with Him. But I can serve my flesh. And I can do what I think I need to do right away or what I want to do without allowing the Lord to be the one that directs those priorities each and every day. I too have to hit into that place of intentionality as I work. Because God's called us all into a disciplined and ordered life of work. So secondly, the second part of this example to follow. We see here in verse 10 through 12. It says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So we are to exhort, not enable those unwilling to work. We're to exhort, not enable those unwilling to work. 
Now, we're called to meet the needs of those who are truly in need. 1 John 3, 17 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So God's not saying, hey, leave them on their own. What he's saying is there's a distinction here. There are those in the church that he's talking about here in Thessalonica who are unwilling to work. By unwilling, what he gives us a picture of is that these are people who can at times look busy, but they're actually busy bodies. They're, they're getting nothing done. They're coming up with excuses as to why they can't work. Now, there are going to be times and seasons where we're out of work because we're hurt or we're sick. And sometimes those seasons may go on very long. And God calls us as the body to reach around and to meet those needs. He calls families to meet the needs of widows. He says that pure ministry is to take care of widows and orphans. We are called to meet those who have true needs. But when there is an unwillingness to work on the part of a person, and that unwillingness is that they are remaining idle, they are living undisciplined and disordered, we're not to enable that. We're not to continue to give money towards that as a body of Christ for those in the church. If somebody is consistently living outside of their means, we're not to continue to continue to give to them. Our job would be to come alongside, bear up with them, and help them find what is within their means. Our call is to walk alongside one another, to bear up with one another. It's not to enable one another. See, the individuals that Paul's mentioning here are marked by laziness. They're being busybodies. They actually do more harm in their idleness. See, what laziness often does in busybodies is it produces gossip. Gossip and laziness almost always go hand in hand. Because in order to remain lazy, you have to become critical. You have to adopt a critical spirit. And as a part of that critical spirit, that will produce gossiping. It's kind of like we often talk about children need to not have idle time. We all need not have idle time. Because idle time, and we're talking idle, meaning unproductive time, that we lose sight of who Jesus is and his purpose for us. Does that make sense? There are times that we need to be together. There are times that we need to be alone to focus on the Lord. But our idle time that we do have needs to be marked by Christ And that's different than the idle time he's talking about here. This idle time is marked by laziness. A lack of desire and willingness to one work, but more than that, there may be working going on, but it's a thing where I say, yeah, I don't really want to do what I'm supposed to do. These may be the responsibilities for me, but I don't want to do them. And so I find other ways to make myself look busy, or to feel good about what I'm doing, and then I'm not quiet about it. Because what happens is then I produce within me is a critical spirit and a gossiping spirit.
too much idle time leads to meddling. Getting involved in situations that are not your business. And that's what he's grabbing at. Notice what he says. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice what he says. How do we know that's what he's talking about with busybodies? Because in verse 12 he says, In the Lord Jesus Christ, again invoking the name of Jesus and the authority of Christ, he says, Encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. somebody's unwilling to get up to go to work, we're not going to enable it. As believers, we're called not to enable it. If somebody keeps missing job interviews because they oversleep, we're not enabling it. His point is that this actually creates an undue burden on the body of Christ and actually is an exploitation of the generosity of the church. Proverbs 12, 11 says, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. 1 Timothy 6, 9-10 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kind of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. A busybody can look like somebody who's chasing after get-rich-quick schemes. Or things that make them seem like they have a job, but they really don't. God may be calling some of you who, and some of th- those that have jobs that aren't really jobs to go and find a job. I've heard it often said, well, I don't like working for anybody. Well, that's a different problem. Now you got two. You're idle and you're prideful. Right? I mean, if we really look at it, none of us like having authority over us if it means that we have to do what we don't want to do. We love authority that lets us do what we want to do. And at the heart of all authority is submission. And when we say that we're unwilling to submit to authority, what we're actually saying is we're unwilling to submit to any authority. And the ultimate authority is Jesus. God has actually placed authority in our life for our good. And it's through that good that then we also see how Jesus himself submitted to the authority of the Father. When we submit, we actually identify with Jesus. So when we say we're unwilling to submit to authority, when we're unwilling to work under someone else, we're actually rejecting the opportunity to identify with Christ. And you aren't rejecting that person and their authority, but you're rejecting Jesus. The third way that we walk as an example 
is to be strengthened with hope, knowing the Lord's clear plan for those who remain unrepentant. Be strengthened with hope, knowing the Lord's clear plan for those who remain unrepentant. So he says here, he says, do not grow weary in doing good. One of the worst things, one of the most wearying things is to work with a person claiming to be a brother or sister in Christ who is unwilling to walk in the truth and counsel of God's word. Now, for all of us, there are times we may have to hear it a few different times. But then there are times where it's not a matter of how we had to hear it once or twice or three times and now we got it and we're walking in it. But that when we put those truths before one another, there is refusal to walk in those truths. And there may not be an out and out, no, I'm not doing it. It's just, no, I didn't do it. It didn't happen. One of the best ways to tell this is how many excuses you get. Right? How often the person tells an excuse. Yeah, I didn't have time. Ever have something that's super important in your heart and mind? You want counsel on that? And it's the most important thing? And then you realize after receiving counsel, you're like, yeah, I never even remotely followed through on that. Well, when we're dealing with sin in our life, God is calling us to deal with that, to not delay. And as a body of Christ, what often happens within the church is that we want to be gracious towards people because God has demonstrated grace towards us. But that grace and mercy becomes exploited. And what happens is we then become discouraged because we're always working with someone who never is willing to change, who's never willing to do the work that God has called them to do, never willing to walk in obedience. They might give lip service to it, but they'd never follow through. Not in any kind of enduring way. And you're back at the table having the same conversation once again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And there's still no change. It's wearying. It's wearying. These are the people that we often refer to as joy sucks. They take the life right out of you. Because you're investing and investing and investing and investing. And what you've come to realize is you want it more than they want it. You want them to follow Christ more than they want to follow Christ. Well, here's what he's saying. Don't grow weary. I've laid out a clear plan for this. For someone in sin that is unrepentant in sin, I've laid out a clear plan. See, Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself lest you too be tempted. Yes, we want to come alongside those who are struggling in sin. And we do. But if there comes a point where we are now being sucked dry, where there's a weariness that's happening because what we see is that someone is no longer actually willing to walk in the truth, but they're giving lip service to it, God has a plan. He says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with them that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. He actually says this person ought to be church disciplined. 
meaning that he's dealt with here as an unrepentant sinner. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, those who are idle. John Calvin points out, Paul forbids the Thessalonians to encourage their laziness by indulging in it and teaches us that it is those who prove themselves the necessity of life by honorable and useful work that lead a life of holiness. We can be assured. And I think that's the hardest part about walking in a discipline process within the church that he lays out in Matthew 18, is being sure of it. It always seems severe. To the one receiving, they're not going to like it because they're in rebellion. To those watching, no one wants to be treated as an outsider or as a, a being put out and having none done with. And notice what he says here. He says, don't treat him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. They're still our brothers and sisters in Christ. But God's given a plan, and this discipline plan is for their good, that they might repent and believe on Jesus. And it is for the body's good, that the body does not grow weary and fall into sin itself. It is for the protection and preservation of the holiness of the church. I don't think many of us think about that in ways of when we see somebody that's unwilling to work. But this is how God says to deal with it within the body of Christ. Those believers who claim Christ but are living idle lives. It also means that those of us who are living disordered lives, unintentional lives in Christ... that we need to be admonished that God doesn't want us living a disordered life, a life of discord, but he wants us living lives with intentionality pursuing him. Matthew 18, 15 through 17 lays out the approach. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you've gained your brother but he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Finally, embrace the peace and confidence found in the blessing of God's grace. Embrace the peace and confidence found in the blessing of his grace. Paul concludes his letter by pointing them right back in all of what he said to the peace and confidence that can be found in grace. And that's where he's pointing us even as we look at this issue of idleness and work. There may be situations at work where you are not experiencing peace because the job frankly stinks. Your peace was never meant to be found in your work. It was always meant to be found in Jesus. Your confidence in dealing with these matters was never to be found in your work or in how you feel we ought to proceed with somebody who is idle. Our confidence is found in his word. You see, God's peace through the presence of the Holy Spirit and God's confidence, which comes through the direction of his word, are parts of God's grace. 
I think sometimes we talk about the grace of God and it's kind of nebulous. It's kind of whatever's out there. God's grace is provided in the body of Christ. God's grace is provided in his salvation. God's grace is provided in his continuing victory over sin. God's grace is provided through his word and the counsel and direction given. And God's grace is provided through the peace that's given through the person and work of Christ in your life through the Spirit. See, John 14, 16 affirms this when it says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Grace is also experienced through the word. And 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. As we work, embrace the peace and confidence found in the blessing of his grace. My hope is that as we actively wait for the return of Christ, that we don't live disordered lives, but rather we live disciplined, ordered, intentional lives for Christ. Not waiting for life to happen to us, but pursuing the one who has created it, overcome it, and redeemed it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we just rest on this truth of work, may we see that our work is valuable to you. God, may we follow the example set forth by the apostles and may we follow the example set forth by you, knowing that the only way that we are going to live that out is through your spirit at work in our life. Today, Maybe we workers who exemplify your truth and bear truth, bear fruit of the truth of your glory. And we ask this in your name. Amen.